would like to uh, ask you to, uh, to turn to a passage of the scriptures very familiar to you. You find it at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the last four verses. And this is the word of the Lord, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we all know, this is the ending of Matthew's gospel, but it's also the beginning of Jesus' uh, global mission. As one would expect, a universal mission was going to require a universal authority and a universal and constant presence of the person in command of the mission. And that is what we see in the Great Commission text. All authority in heaven and on earth, and under the promise, I am with you always, all the time. All authority, all nations, obey all, all the time with you. This portion of the scripture is as absolute as anyone can state it. This is certainly not a postmodern declaration. As some have pointed out, verse 18 of this passage contains the highest Christology of the New Testament. This authority that Christ has received wasn't so much new, but it was wider. And with that expanded authority, Christ commissioned his disciples into a new mission. As he did that, as the Lord commissioned his first missionaries, he passed on to them not only a message, but also a conviction, a passion, a hope, a certainty. He gave them an authority that couldn't fail because behind those words was the integrity of his name. It is is hard to imagine being all of that being transmitted through a corrupted word. A mission as monumental as this one, the one announced by Christ before ascending into heaven, would need a solid, unbreakable, unshakable, unquestionable, unchallengeable authority, and that's exactly what they received in his word. If we did not receive an inerrant word, it would be very difficult to deal even with the passage at hand. Because we know the wording of Matthew's gospel is so different from the way the other gospels end. Do these differences in the gospel represent errors on the parts of the authors? Or did God purposely inspire them as complementary but not discordant? Let's keep in mind that if parts of the Bible are in error, as critics are saying, any part of it can be found in one, and that includes the gospel message. 
And not only the gospel message, but also the Great Commission text in the New Testament. Furthermore, if we are not certain about the inerrancy of the Bible, of the original message that we received, we couldn't be sure of the gospel. We couldn't be sure of what the gospel is. We couldn't repeat the words of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 15, 1 to 3. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That last phrase is very important. What I also received. We pass on to others a word, a message that we are certain about. We are passing that on to the next generation, believing, knowing that it's a trustworthy worthy word, a worthy text. For the purpose of seeing how vitally important inerrancy is to the Great Commission, I will divide my text from Matthew into four parts, four phrases. Go therefore to the ends of the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe, obey all that I have commanded to you. Let's begin with our first phrase. Go therefore. Jesus was sending his 11 disciples into a mission and their followers into a worldwide mission where they would encounter all kinds of obstacles, opposition, uncertainties. And that is the very reason why Christ was so emphatic when he said, All authority has been given to me. He was commissioning his first evangelist on the basis of his expanded authority. Christ was delegating his authority to those 11 disciples. And to some degree, he was going to delegate some level of authority to every single person that was going to get involved in carrying the Great Commission, but that authority was invested in His Word. The people being sent needed a certainty. They needed to be, they needed to have complete confidence in the sender, but they needed to have complete confidence in the message to be shared. Any degree of doubt in either the sender of the message to be shared was going to create doubtful, hesitant, fearful disciples, incapable of embracing a task as encompassing as the entire world. Could you imagine going to the ends of the world with a corrupted message? Or with parts of it considered uninspired, or mixed with errors, or mixed with myths. The men of all risk their life, preaching and teaching, and going around to evangelize the heathens because they were convinced. They were convinced that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They had an absolute confidence in the power and trustworthiness of the message that they were given. 
They knew full well that if they spoke from God, they spoke in the name of God. They knew that very well. And obviously the preaching of a fallible message would bring into question the trustworthiness, not only of the word, but also of the name of God. The very name into which they will be baptizing the new converts. Picture that for a moment. And if the message was in error, that will bring into question the sender, the word, the name, the very nature, the very essence of God. Because his word and his name represent who he is. This is how the psalmist says it. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When disciple makers go into the mission field, believing that the word being shared is not totally reliable, there will be a tendency to retreat when the message is challenged. Some perhaps will say, for example, that we cannot believe the cosmology of the Bible, especially in the first three chapters of Genesis. Because it doesn't square with, with our scientific understanding of today. The critics would argue that the writers of the Bible quite frequently describe the cosmos and historical accounts according to their mythological understanding of the time, of the day. Now, if critics are right in their assessment then there is no way to argue against the mythological and cosmological understanding of the pagan religions in the mission field. There wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be any. Because both our understanding and their understanding would only be reflecting mythological description of the orig origin of the universe or mythologized history as someone would call it. Why would anyone abandon a faulty revelation of the origin of the, uni the universe to embrace our revelation? How would you argue with that? How would you convince that person? There wouldn't be a way to convince. Why would you want me to embrace a new Weltanschauung, a view of life and the world that is in error if mine, you are telling me, is also in error? Many do not understand the implications, the full implications of embracing the errant word of God instead of the inerrant word. J.I. Packer was so right when he stated, when you encounter the view of Holy Scripture, you are encountering the source, criterion, and control of all evangelical theology and religion. If those who are being sent to proclaim the gospel cannot be sure about the message that they carry, would they go passionately? Would they risk, risk their life? Would they give their life for an error when the time comes? Would they engage in apologetic evangelism? Would they confront the lies of the new cultures where they are going? If the revealed word they carry were inaccurate, what would be the moral authority to challenge 
the culture, the pagan culture where you are arriving, the beliefs of those new people that you are encountering. The Great Commission would become impossible mission. Many pastors and missionaries do not believe in the power of the gospel alone to do the work of evangelism. We've seen that. We have seen the result of that lack of trust. The introduction of gimmicks. The introduction of strategies to attract the unbelievers. And we saw that very well at the peak of the controversy of the church growth movement in the 1990s. O'Guinness quoted a church growth consultant of that time who claimed that 5 to 10 million baby boomers would be back in default within a month if churches adopted three changes. Advertise, let people know about product benefits, and three, be nice to new people. You would have to ask if those people read or read the same Bible we do. At the end of the last century, we were inundated with the teaching of the seeker-friendly church movement as a way to improve our evangelistic efforts. Then the church movement, the church growth movement was becoming popular, popular, was going beyond the American frontiers. Is it any wonder that one of the gurus of that movement, Peter Wagner, professor of church growth at Fuller Theological Seminary, was at the center of the controversy? The same institution that began to abandon the belief in the inerrancy of the word in the 1960s and finally changed their doctrinal statement, statement in 1971. If one loses confidence in the inerrancy of the Bible, it is natural that one would recur to ancillary methods of evangelism and church growth. Church growth. As the sender, the senders, and the goers lost the trust in the inerrancy of the Bible, the church became skeptical of the power of the gospel to change life. And as a consequence, we saw a renovated interest in social sciences. Sociology soon became attractive to study the communities, to determine what kind of churches people really wanted, and then to build that type of church. Psychology became the preferred field of knowledge to do biblical counseling. Marketing became so appealing that articles and books were written about how to improve the evangelism of the church. All of those new recommendations, or many of them, were done or were given to us with a, quote, good intention to carry out the Great Commission and to build and plan churches. Unfortunately, many times the wrong church was being developed. The church allowed modernity to impact its theological understanding and is now suffering the consequences of such clash. 
Modernity questioned the inerrancy of the Word of God, and it questioned the sufficiency of the work of God. The disciples were told. The disciples were instructed. They were taught what to do. They were given these words, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, there is a problem. If you had a, a big harvest, few workers is the solution. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. How is that for a marketing strategy? <laughs> People who don't believe in the power of the word would rather pay than pray. You could pay a consultant and you could pray to the Lord. The disciples when were the disciples were further instructed and they were told to wait for power from above. And when he came, they preached the gospel, they preached the word boldly. Acts 4.13 They filled Jerusalem with the teaching of the gospel. Jerusalem was filled with the disciples' teaching. 5.12 5.28 Pardon me. Samaria was filled with joy, Acts 8.8. 8. Ephesus was in turmoil, 19.23 and 24 of the book of Acts. All of that transformation without any help from the social sciences or without the use of the new strategies to evangelize that I will be discussing later on. The second phrase, or the second phrase. To the ends of the world. Some have declared that inerrancy is an American construct. And the reason why they are saying that is because it is understood that it resulted, it's understood by them, that it resulted from the clash between fundamentalism and modernity. And so they say that outside of this country we don't really need Inerrancy. I am, as you can already tell from outside this country, that we don't really need inerrancy because we get along well and we could go on with our mission. However, to affirm such a thing is to ignore church history and to ignore what else has taken place in the global south. To begin with, we need to remember that inerrancy is about truth and truth is universal. It's about God, the revealer of truth. Whatever is important in the North is something that's important in North America. And it is true, it must be important in South America. It would be unthinkable to consider a mission as encompassing as the entire world, world with truth related to God's revelation that are important in one place but not important in the other. Why is it important? Because truth is universal, and so is the Great Commission. All nations. We just need to ask, how is it important, and why is it important here and there? The inerrancy of the Bible is important in the global north, as some have mentioned, because, or have called it, 
because of the attacks on the Bible that we have been hearing about. And it is important in the other hemisphere, given the proliferation of extra-biblical revelation seen in the other, in the south hemisphere. The doctrines of inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, and completion of the canon are all bound up together. These tenets of the faith, these truths, represent a unified whole. If you remove one of these foundational truths, the whole building will suffer. It is true that in the Global South, modernity did not clash with Christianity the way it did in the USA. That is true. For that reason, the loss of confidence in the Bible in that global south did not come through the front door of inerrancy, but rather through the back door of extra-biblical revelation, which represents a denial of the sufficiency of the, script, of the scripture and of the finality of the canon. In many cases, the introduction of extra-biblical revelation came as a consequence of the animistic worldviews of the nations being evangelized. We talked some more about that last Monday. But once you yield to extra-biblical revelation, the denial of the inerrancy of the Bible is very simple. Extra-biblical doctrinal revelation presupposes an open canon and therefore, and therefore an incomplete Bible which someone will have to complete. And moving from a Bible in need of completion to a Bible in need of correction is only one step away. So it did come in, but it did come in through the back door rather than through the front door. In the global south, the new prophets and apostles are trying to complete the Bible with their new revelations. In the north, the critics are trying to correct the Bible with their new research. New doctrinal revelations in the animistic hemisphere, new research in the rationalistic world. The south does it through mysticism, the north does it through rationalism. Schleimacher should have been born in the South. He would have done very well there. <laughs> A word that is in error cannot be sufficient. Its sufficiency would depend upon the authority of those who pretend to correct it. Could you see the implications of abandoning the doctrine of inerrancy? A complete and closed canon is a sufficient word, and a sufficient word is an inerrant word. The prophets and apostles in the north, and now in the global south, had never been defenders of the inerrancy of the Bible. They couldn't be. They couldn't be. Their completion of the revelation of God fits better, better with an inerrant Bible. So you could see how the infiltration of this doctrine in the global south has come in into the church and is beginning to damage the church before the church can possibly understand even the whole battle between modernity and fundamentalism in this country. I mentioned earlier that in the 1990s, many of the church growth movement in America were making use of the social sciences to improve our evangelistic efforts. In the mission field, 
it was different. It is still different. But a similar phenomenon was taking place. We were being taught, in quote, how to improve evangelism in the mission field, but obviously we wouldn't do that through social sciences in the South, but rather through a spiritual warfare. The problem, according to these new teachers, was that these unevangelized fields were controlled by demons. And therefore, before you preach the gospel, before the gospel could be effective in them, you needed to get rid of those demons through power encounters. A new spiritual warfare movement was launched. The result was that the church stopped preaching the gospel and began to rebuke demons. And that's what we have seen left and right. However, Christ commanded, or Christ's command was, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Teach them obedience to my word. That was his commandment to carry out the Great Commission. And later on, the Apostle Paul came and he said, preach the word in season, about a season. And his premise was that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believed. Today we've seen the exchange of the preaching of the word of God for the rebuking of demons and the use of social sciences and some other places. Now this is interesting. At the center of both controversies, the church growth movement and the spiritual warfare movement was Peter Wagner from Fuller Theological Seminary. The institution already mentioned in connection with the abandonment of the inerrancy of the Bible in 1971. You read his book on spiritual warfare and you wonder where do they get such understanding? Once you stop believing in the inerrancy of the Bible, we chip away the authority and the sufficiency of the same Bible. In the animistic global south where we are ministering, the new tool to carry out the Great Commission is the spiritual warfare. And as part of that strategy, a lot of things speak of what has been called prophetic acts, the remitting of sins of nations, the tearing down of strongholds, as well as other new ideas. Those terms were unheard of, according to them even, before 1990s. And eventually, oh, apparently, the church was rendered ineffective until then, until now, because it did not understand how to battle those demons and be able to do that before the word was pre preached. So the gospel was not powerful enough and the gospel is not sufficient according to the news, news, these new trends. Others have spoken about training goers how to do signs and wonders to improve the evangelism as they carry out the Great Commission through what they call power evangelism. I don't know where everyone is here regarding the gift of the Spirit, but one would think that we would all agree that the gift of the Spirit were, are, depending upon where you are, gift 
severally uh, bestowed to the believer by the Spirit of God and not abilities that I could learn in a seminary or in a training session. Given seminars to train people to perform signs and wonder, once again, I wonder, do we read the same Bible? What Christ spoke about preaching and teaching the word to the ends of the world, we now speak of all kinds of power display. I'm not picking on Peter Wagner, but he has been at the center of the controversy. And one last time, this is what he says. The key elements of this power boost that have so far emerged are a strategic, a strategic level, a spiritual warfare, a spiritual mapping, and identificational repentance, whatever that means. <laughs> we live there. A lot of this is nothing more than the result of the lack of confidence in the Word of God and syncretism between the old and the new, the old way of thinking, animism, and the new way of seeing life and the world, Christianity. You had that clash in North America with the Enlightenment, where the Enlightenment never got there. At least the way you saw it here. We never saw the Reformation, nor are we the child of the Enlightenment. But we do have significant influence from the animistic world. And we need to recover the sufficiency and the confidence in the inerrant word of God. The words of Timothy Pierce in his book, Enthroned in Our Praise, are very pertinent at this point. Quote, the hermeneutic of suspicion that characterizes so much of the scholarship and that has infiltrated the church is a dangerous undertaking because it undermines the principle of trust. When we as creatures begin to view God and his revelation through the lens of doubt and suspicion, it becomes easy not only to question the content of the message but the intent as well. Because the word came from God, the word is self-authenticated. We do not sit in judgment of the Bible, it's the other way around. We do not preach on top of the Bible, or from on top of the Bible, we preach from underneath it. We are under its authority all the time. Make disciples, my third phrase. That one phrase summarizes the Great Commission. That one single short phrase. You know better than me that in the original is only one word. And that one word is the main verb. Indeed, is the only verb in the imperative. The others, go, baptize, and teach, are subordinate participles that take imperial force. So clearly, this phrase determines our task, is make disciples, and not simply about evangelizing. The commandment was not to make profession of faith, but rather to make, or to see men and women totally committed to the Lordship of Christ. That was the commandment. That's what, that's what the word disciple meant. Now, those going into the mission field to make disciples, they needed certain they needed assurance 
certainty to go into new uncharted territories. And that is precisely what Christ did. He gave them two guarantees. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me at the very beginning of the Great Commission text. And at the very end, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. They are two bookends. You could have certainty between all authority that I have, I possess, and I'm delegating in my word, and the fact that I'm going to be with you, you're going to have my constant presence all the time to the end of the age. That was important. That is important. Now, in the Sermon of the Mountain, the Sermon of the Mount, I should say, we have a perfect illustration of how Christ assured his disciples about the truthfulness of his revelation from beginning to end. For truly I say to you, Matthew 5:18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There is the word again, all. All authority, all nations, obey all. I'll be with you all. Every word will be fulfilled. In other words, we can, we can count on the integrity of that word until the completion of time. Until then, Christ promised that the word will continue to be true. That, that is why it is called the eternal word. And Christ promised that he will fulfill the Great Commission. A similar assertion... It is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. It is not written in your law, I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and his scriptures cannot be broken, and then Christ goes on, his scriptures cannot be broken, nor he cannot, not he will not. The assurance of texts of this sort is vital for the missionary enterprise. Think about it for a second. A pastor in the mission field can anchor his life and his ministries on these promises. He can anchor his disciples on these promises. However, the moment one admits the possibility of an errant word, one could doubt the fulfillment of any prophecy because we couldn't be sure if that prophecy was stated in the first place and if it was, was stated that way or in some other ways. Therefore, the teaching of eschatology would have to be done on shaky grounds. Is it going to happen? I don't know. We hope we will. That's not what Christ said. Not an iota will pass away until all is fulfilled. What would you tell newcomers? You know, when we all, at least in the global south, we are very interested in eschatology. As soon as we enter the faith, we want to know about the future. That's the way it was in their animism in the first place. So we want to know about the future. What should we tell them? If we are not sure about the message that we received. The quality of the disciples we are talking about now. The essence of the Great Commission. Make disciples. The quality of the disciples we make depends in great measure. On how the disciples receive the word. And what they believe about it. And notice what Paul said to the Thessalonians in his first letter in 1.7. You, the Thessalonians, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
Now you would wonder, how did that church develop such a solid walk and reputation when Paul was there, some think three Sabbath days, some others believe perhaps few months. How could they have developed such a mature view of things in such a short time? Well, listen to what Paul wrote to them in the next chapter, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as the word, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. First, he tells them about what a great testimony they have, and then he tells them why. Because you receive the word for what it really is, the word of God, not the word of man. And in the mission field, that is the way it will play out. The way the word is presented will determine the quality of the disciples we will see. The Thessalonians were of a different opinion than the critics of the last 200 years. And one would think that they would be better witnesses than them, don't you think? They live in the first century. Receiving the word of God one way or another will affect the quality of the disciples, as I already mentioned. And that understanding is vital. It's vital for the Great Commission, which, as I said, can be summarized in one phrase, make disciples. In carrying out the Great Commission, what should we tell the disciple? What should we teach them about the truthfulness of the word being received? What should we tell them? Do we say that it is all reliable? Partly reliable? Or do we say that it is all reliable in some portion, but partially reliable in some other portions? What should we tell the disciples when they ask, how do we know which portions of the Bible are reliable and which are not? Should we say that the inerrancy of the Bible varies according to the interpreters of the critics? You could see that by going in that direction, we are suddenly confronted with the problem. We either trust the entirety of the word of God or the entirety of the word of the critics. There's no in between. And one can predict what this teaching will do. It will produce disciples who would constantly question the authority of the Bible or portions of it. And certainly those disciples will not have the quality of those at the Thessalonian church at the time of Paul, at least. Let's take a look at our last phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Last but not least, we have this monumental phrase about obedience. The Lord specifically revealed to his senders how to make disciples by teaching them to obey all I commanded you. This leaves out the possibility of obeying, believing one portion, and denying and ignoring the other portion. Daniel Doriani has a very poignant observation in his commentary about the Great Commission text in the Gospel of Matthew. Listen to him. 
the Greek expression that is translated everything, all, it is actually two terms. One means all things and the other means as much as. The effect is to intensify the command. We must teach potential disciples to obey, to obey every last thing Jesus said. End of the quote. What should, why would the Lord give such a, an absolute command? Because all the scripture is God-breathed. And it is therefore inerrant, absolute, authoritative, trustworthy, unshakable, unbreakable, and worthy to be obeyed. Inerrancy is about truth. And truth is about God. I cannot imagine making disciples and telling them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And at the same time, telling them that the discrepancies in the gospel are the result of errors on the part of the authors of Midrash, as some have claimed. Once you accept it, once you accept the possibility of myth, Midrash, errors, the Great Commission text could become easily under suspicion. The gospel could become under suspicion. If anyone is a believer in the Great Commission text and in the gospel, he will have to need or he will have to have a high view of a scripture. Kevin Van Husser puts it this way, a high view of biblical authority that affirms its entire trustworthiness is necessary to preserve the integrity of the gospel. And candidate terms, for example, infallibility, that have thought to capture the notion have become diluted over time. So while inerrancy, says he, is clearly not part of the substance of the gospel, in, in parentheses, union and communion with Christ, it is connected to the proclamation of the gospel. Specifically, it is an outworking of the trustworthiness of a scripture. End of the quote. Sure. Because the command was to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. The Lord wouldn't command us to obey errors, a midrash, or things like it. As I said on Monday, if the Lord gave us a faulty word, he set us up for a faulty, a faulty theology, for the development of a faulty theology, but that is inconsistent with the character of the God that we know in the Bible. The text without, with errors cannot command full obedience. Some might say, well, um, the obey all only refers to the words of Jesus. But you know, you have read it, you have seen it, you have heard it. Christ treated the Old Testament as authoritative. We heard it from Arceus Sproul yesterday as he explained it. Christ himself treated the Old Testament as authoritative, so that could not be the case. And then after Christ came Paul, and then Paul talked about the fact the, that we should be preaching, teaching the whole counsel of God. If the Bible is full of errors or is not inerrant, then that very word of counsel of 
Paul to us to teach all the, the entire will of God would have to be questioned because there are things, Paul, that I couldn't be teaching according to what we have come to understand by the critics. Many are not aware that many heresies have been born in the mission field. And one of the reasons is precisely because of the lost, of the lack of confidence in the Bible. And that happens quite frequently after you lose the confidence in the inerrancy of the word. And that was the case of Latin America with liberation theology, where that theology was born. The importance of a particular doctrine can be judged on the basis of three things. Number one, diverted from God about the Bible itself. You can find that here. You can look at Psalm 19, Psalm 119, and then find a summary there of what is his verdict. Number two, the results seen when that doctrine is in place and the consequence, number two, number three, produced in the absence of that same doctrine. I think the history of the Reformation, of the Reformation movement, it speaks well for the embracing of the doctrine of inerrancy. And by the same token, the history of the liberal movement, it speaks eloquently about the consequences of the abandonment of inerrancy. The time has been running. I've been checking the clock here, and I need to close. But let me read these words from the Apostle Paul to his younger disciple in 2 Timothy 4. I will summarize this passage. Um, Alistair Begg uh, preached from it yesterday eloquently, so I will not tire you out with it. But basically, I want to read to you. From 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 and verse 5. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Notice the connection between the charge, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill the ministry that appears in verse 5, and the charge of preaching the word that appears in verse 2. That is the way we carry out the Great Commission, by preaching His word, His infallible and inerrant word. That is the way Christ did it, as we see it in the gospel. That is the way we see it in the book of Acts, the way the apostles did it, and that is the way the true church has always done it for the last 2,000 years. Let us not compromise at this time of ambivalence, but rather let us stand together for the sake of God's word and for the glory of God's name. Go forth, preaching the inerrant and unshakable word to a drifting world. Do not fear, for all authority has been given to Christ, and he promised to be with us Always to the end of this age. Go forth. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Trust in his name. Trust his power. In him we have his promises. In the gospel we have his power. Father in heaven. I thank you and I praise you. That you did not leave the great commission enterprise 
to be designed by us. But you gave us the instructions, you gave us the premises, you gave us the power, you gave us your word, you gave us your presence. What else do we need? What else could we ask? Forgive us. Forgive your church when I have tried to reinvent what you already planned, designed, and gave to us. In Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen.